Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Survivor, teacher, artist, author, liberator, wayfinder, Jamaican boss lady. Those are just some of the many ways that my guest today shows up in her life and in her powerful work. Welcome back storytellers to this incredible episode that we will be recording today with my friend down in Atlanta. We are going the distance for this edit today. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about my guest. Incarcerated for a decade, Bridgette Simpson, we call her Brie, is now the host of her own podcast and the CEO of the platform Broke Budget, which we'll talk all about today. This is where she works as a financial coach for folks looking to break free from broke mindsets, shift into empowerment, and simultaneously break down barriers that imprison marginalized people physically, socially, financially, and emotionally. Barriers that block them from attaining full liberation. Now, she is also a member of the movement for Black Lives, so we're going to talk about that important work as well, but let's just first start by saying, hello, Bridgette. Hello, Brie. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. I am honored to have you here. I'm honored, and I will share for my listeners that as I am recording this, I am looking at the beautiful Brie, and she is dressed in gold sparkly dress and a crown that says, birthday girl so happy birthday thank you thank you so much it's um it definitely is um my birthday and I will be celebrating indefinitely actually <laughs> because <laughs> it, it it's really um I don't know it's really a blessing to just be um alive and on this side and doing well so yeah Yeah, a blessing to be alive and on this side. So we're going to talk a little bit about your backstory in a minute, but I want to kick off with actually the work that you're doing, because this is how I came to know you was through the actual work that you're putting out in the world through this platform broke budget. And now we said at the top here, that platform is meant to help people break free from broke mindsets and shift into empowerment. But tell me for you, what does that really mean? I mean, it's really grounded in this idea of being free, isn't it? Yeah, so it definitely is. Like, I'm um, so broke budget. It, it really, like, even the name, right? Like, it's like two things that, like, are opposites, right? Because if you budget, you won't be broke, right? And if you don't budget, then you will be broke. 
So, but I just also acknowledge that people are broken in more ways than just one, right? Like it's not just a financial thing. People are broke financially because they don't understand the concept of freedom, right? They don't understand the concept of actually being free. So I think a lot of times people don't really fully understand their finances. And really it's because most people aren't taught about their finances, right? Like, and it, and it, and it has a lot to do like with where you're from, how you grow up, like all of these things impact how, how you view money. And in order to be financially free, you first have to understand Right. You have to understand what your credit is. You have to understand why it's important to, you know, to pay a bill when it's due. It, it, it's so many different. Um, yeah, it's so many different things that you have to understand before you actually get to the point of of even budgeting. Right. You have to first like budget your mindset before you can even move to like the numerical portions of, of finance. Because I'm like, uh, I'm a person that's impacted and we say impacted when we make reference to a person that's formerly incarcerated, right? Because we like, um, in my work, we practice like language justice so we can empower people with our words. So people who are like formerly incarcerated or impacted, like because we are blocked from so many resources, it's almost impossible to be free. Because if you don't have a place to live, if you don't have, you know, if you don't have the things that you need, like monetarily for like food or, you know, just just things, just very basic needs, like it will be very difficult for you to be free. Because in order to be free, if you're on any type of probation or anything like that, you have to have a job right? You have to have a job, you have to have an address, you have to have certain things. And if you don't, then you will more likely than not be reincarcerated. So just, um, just really wanting people to understand the importance of like having a good, financially healthy life. So that was why it was super important to me to like, um, to start the whole broke budget movement. Yes, I love this. And I love the context that you're providing here as well. Now, something that I didn't mention at the top is you very recently graduated from the two story talk speaker training program, and you absolutely like brought down the house with your personal talk and it was called freedom. And something you just said, it really struck me because you said language justice, which I, of course, have dabbled in and know a little bit about, but I'm really curious to get into your brain on this subject matter and specifically around that word freedom. Talk to me just about that word and what it really means to you. Well, freedom for me, it means um, to actually be without um, confinement, right? Like to be without boundaries, not to be without like rules or things of that nature, but to be able to have the ability to have personal autonomy, to choose what you wear, you know, like how you'll look in the, in the morning, like um, you'll have the ability to, to, to pick what you'll eat, you know, like for me, like freedom means very, like very, very basic things, right? Because I didn't have the ability to do any of these things for a decade, right? So like freedom, it also means the ability to like, to be able to live, right? To, to be able to live without um, 
being hindered in any type of way. So for me, that's something that I constantly chase because I am a person who was impacted. Also, um, to be very transparent, also because just in general, I am a, 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 you know, a person of color. I'm a black woman. So like just being a woman, also being a black woman and then being a black formerly incarcerated woman and living in America, being a black formerly incarcerated immigrant woman, there, there is so many different, um, there are so many different labels that I always try to fight for my freedoms within. So, you know, freedom to me is the very basic ability to breathe the air the way that I want to breathe it, to pick what I want to eat and to have a place to sleep and eat without like having to, you know, have, having to look over my shoulder and, and wonder if, you know, like if this will be taken away from me, like just by the blink of an eye. So to me, that's, you know, like my very basic definition of freedom. Wow. And I wouldn't, I personally would not define that as a basic definition. I have, I am just blown away by the way that you describe the intersection of all of these kind of identities and how that has impacted you. And I'm putting that in quotations because it has a secondary uh, notion for you as well as somebody who has been incarcerated, but how it does impact your life. And in your personal talk that you shared, you also introduced us to your childhood and growing up with this extra layer as well, this extra intersection of economic disparity of growing up actually as a young girl you didn't even know you were poor. You said you didn't even have a clue that you were poor, but how that began to shape out for you was more in terms of how other people perceived you as not being beautiful. Can you talk to me a little bit about that and how your childhood and your understanding of yourself and what you experienced as a child in poverty, kind of how that contributed to all of this that you're sharing with us? So I'm sure like most, most children, you don't really realize that you're different until somebody points it out to you. So like, I didn't know that like I was poor. I did not know, like, I I didn't know, like I lived in this house and I was so excited about the house because my mom and my dad, you know, they had finally gotten a house. Like we lived in apartments before. So I'm so excited and I'm like, you know, I, I feel like I live in this mansion, right? Because it's like four bedrooms and whatever, you know, I didn't notice that there were like, you know, it was wood on the windows or anything like that. I just thought that's what happened with houses that you fix them up. I did not know that my parents had purchased like, you know, an abandoned home. I didn't know that. Like I had no clue. I was just so excited about my home. And I was also equally as excited about my future, right? Like, I thought I was just going to be Oprah. Like, literally, I remember my mom asking me, like, who do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm like, Oprah? Like, that's like a no-brainer. Like, (laughs) I want to be Oprah, right? (laughs) And it wasn't until, like, those mean kids, right, like, decided to tell me, like, hey, first of all, you're dark and you're not going to be anything like that. You're ugly and you are poor. And I'm like, no, I'm not. And, you know, come to find out, like, I really, really was poor. I did not know that. I did not. I had no clue. And it was like that instance, like when I was in the playground and they told me like, oh, no, you can't be like a ballerina. You can't 
do any of those things. And it, it also was because of what they were taught, right? Because they were also poor. They, you know, I might have been poor, but they went to the same school as me. So they were poor as well, right? Like we all were poor. And when you're in this, this pit, you somehow want to be like less poor than someone else. But we were all poor, to be truthful. But, you know, in their perception, like only people who were lighter got to like get out of being poor or, you know, got to actually like do something extravagant. But because like, you know, I was, you know, thicker and I wasn't like fair skinned, like they just told me like, oh, no, oh, no, you are poor. Like you're poor, you're dark and you're chunky and you will not be any of those things that you want to be. And the worst part was that I actually believed them, right? Like I didn't know, I didn't have like a voice and it's not like, you know, my parents were concentrating on like getting out of whatever rut they were in. They weren't concentrating on trying to tell this little girl like, Hey, like, you know, like you're amazing. They, they, I didn't hear any of that. Not when I was growing up, you know, that that's not, you know, I didn't hear it. So I didn't know that they were telling me, you know, I thought what they were telling me was the truth pretty much. And I bought it, you know, and I bought it and it really shaped a lot, a lot of the experiences that I had in my life. And, um, and I think just remembering, like, you know, just that incident and just, just looking at how the people around me, like, I looked at the way they spent money. Like, I remember being so upset when, you know, someone came in my yard, I thought they were stealing, you know, I thought they were stealing my parents' vehicle, but it was being repossessed. I didn't know that, right? Like, I was so upset, like, why are they taking, you know, my car? Like, I love this car. I didn't know. I did not understand the concept, right? Nor did I understand what was going on around me and what was greater than me, right? Like, because it was like, just then, like in America, it was like, like the war on drugs. I didn't know that there were so many things that were impacting the communities that were around me, right? Like if I only had that knowledge, then I could have told those people, well, actually, hey, you're poor too, you know, <laughs> while you're talking, but right. I, I, I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I didn't know that, right? So like with age and, and knowledge, you know, things, things are enlightened now, but I didn't know that then. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's so powerful too. I mean, I'm kind of in, in my mind right now, I'm seeing this vision of, in fact, Oprah, speaking of Oprah, she has a book out or a recent book out called what happened to you. And I love that sort of reframe of how we are shaped. And, and as you're talking here, it's like what happened to you, but also what didn't happen? What didn't you hear? What was the, were there any sort of countering effects or language that was coming in that was helping support you feeling like you belonged versus you feeling othered so often by these other children who now, of course, as an adult in hindsight, when you look back, you can of course say they were poor too, or they had these economic conditions as well and just didn't quite notice it at the time or wanted to separate themselves from that, I suppose, in some way. Yeah. Uh, And and it was, it was weird because like they had no clue the sacrifices that their parents were making to get them those, you know, 200 pair dollar pair sneakers or to get them all of those things, you know, there were more 
of I, I had more siblings than they did, right? Like I have uh, three three little brothers that lived with me. So there was no one in our house that could have that type of, you know, luxurious things like what those, you know, kids had. And kids can be very, very cruel. People always think that kids tell the truth, but that's not necessarily true. They just tell their versions of it, right? Like, so if someone taught them that, you know, being chunky was bad, then that's what they were only reflecting, what they heard other people say. So they were really just being, you know, a reflection of their parents, in my opinion. So I just, um, you know, like, I, I don't think I've ever seen one of those kids ever again. I know one um, one of the, the young ladies that I was in school with, I know she, um, I believe that she passed away. Um, she was a really bad bully, but she passed away. I think she had like, um, I think she had sickle cell or something. And she passed away. And I just remember hearing that and still feeling really, really bad. And just thinking like, you know, she had her own demons that she was fighting. And maybe that was her way of shifting. And, you know, like, I just, you know, looking at it now, right, that I'm super grown, that that day really should not have determined so much for me, but it did anyway, right? Like, it totally did. Yeah. And that's, that is kind of what your, your talk shaped out as well for the listeners. I mean, of course your entire life story positioned in a 20 minute talk is always hard to encapsulate all the nuance, but something that really stood out, I know in some of the, the powerful kind of positive feedback that we received from that was just this understanding of the impact of our circumstances and on even just an individual event on our lives as a whole. And for you, you had this experience and then you kind of introduced it as, you know, these were the metal bars that were beginning to form around your life and around your mind and around who you believed you were. And take us through that journey a little bit. Take us through to the point of incarceration where this mindset and feeling so othered became this experience behind bars for you. I mean, like, for for me, growing up, it wasn't like easy, right? Um, because I think I don't I don't think that I mentioned this in my talk. Being that I was like an immigrant, I also had an accent, right? So that made it much more difficult to make friends because people didn't understand me, right? There was a whole language barrier. I had a very thick accent, so that made it very, very, very difficult. So that was a metal bar that I did not uh, mention but that that made that was a thing right Uh, because I was all different types of names when it came down to like bullying right like I was the perfect person to be bullied because of all the different things that I have that was separate for someone else so I just I just knew it was very difficult to make friends and I remember having a, a friend her name was Jenny she really wasn't my friend she just um she just wasn't that smart, right? And I was, I I had permission to be smart. You know, that is one thing that my parents told me that I was, oh, you're so smart, you know? And I, you know, and I obviously excelled in school. Like, I think I probably was, I got first place in everything. Like, it just didn't matter. I, if it was a standardized test, like, because I was given permission to be smart, that was, that was the thing, you know, that's what I did. But anyway, um, she wasn't. 
So she was flunking out of everything. And if she flunked out of school, then obviously she would be in, in trouble with her parents. So I got assigned to be her tutor. And I thought, okay, this was going to work out great for me because she could not really not, you know, it, it couldn't be that bad, but it really was. It really was that bad. And um, I thought I would get to, you know, like hang out with all her friends and I would get to be like really super cool and, you know, and everybody would just love me by default because they loved her. Right. But that, <laughs> no, like it just turned out that I was helping her and she would go to all these places and I would never get invited to all the places. And then after like around in that time, like I met, you know, I met the person, my ex who got me in like in, in trouble. He's the person that committed, you know, the crimes and I got in trouble. But because I didn't think that I was pretty, I didn't think, you know, I, I just and he's like, oh, hey, beautiful. So I'm like, oh, great. You know, like I was very positive he wasn't talking to me. And he was right because he had his own set of you know he had his own he had his own ideas for me and my life right and and I had no clue and again because I didn't you know my dad they never told me hey you're beautiful or hey you're you know you're amazing they only told me I was smart so that's the only thing that I believed that I was right so when someone is offering a counter narrative it's like oh really me you know and literally yeah. he like with those few words, like my whole life, like got completely rearranged. And, um, you know, I remember like moving to Atlanta because I just had so much going on and I, um, I had gotten my dream job. Like I wanted so badly to like work with Goldman Sachs. Like that had been like my lifelong, you know, dream or whatever. And, and we got, you know, I got the, the, the position I went to interview and then there was like this um, company down in Atlanta I go there I go to work and he attaches himself to my um, to my dream and I'm still elated because someone had called me beautiful I was like grown I probably was like almost 20 and I had never heard me and beautiful in the same sentence ever wow and so I was just like okay I'm still floating and I remember my cousin was like, I don't like him. And I'm just like, she has got to be jealous because why would she not want, you know, why would she not want me to be with someone who thought I was beautiful, right? And it was just, I just remember that time being such a blur. And then, then he hit me for the first time, right? Like, and then it was like all the beautiful things that he said, they really turned ugly, like it turned ugly and it didn't take that long for it to happen right he like waited till we like moved to Atlanta and then once we moved to Atlanta and I was away from everybody like he didn't want me to talk to my cousin so he tried to isolate me from her he didn't want me to talk to my friends he just like not that I had very many but I did have two and he isolated me from them and then I remember his mom like would always tell me like it's your fault that he's hitting you you had to do something oh, so wow. of course I'm not being offered another narrative right so these are the only narratives that I'll be you know I'm receiving and I just um, I tried to leave him and you know I had three friends at the time and one of the friends I had he actually was sleeping with her behind my back and I didn't know so like I went to her house to try to get away from him so I can make my way back to New Jersey and um, 
you know, she told me, oh, the, you know, the maintenance guy would be coming to fix her apartment. And I, you know, I heard the knock on the door and I went to open the door. And then that's when I got hit in the face with the Louisville slugger bat. And then he grabbed me by my hair and just like drugged me all the way to my trunk of my own car. Well, it was a car he bought, but it was my car. And he like stuffed me in there. And I was in there for like almost, almost five days, it was like four and a half days. And I think he went in there and didn't close the trunk back really good before he went in the gas station and I was able to escape. And then I just, you know, I just never looked back. Like, and I ran away, like completely ran away from him. So, you know, I went to like traffic court, like, because I was such a people pleaser, right? That was like my number one prison. That was the the thing that got me, like, I believe that got me in, in prison more so than the actual him using my vehicle to commit crimes. It was actually me people pleasing, right? Because I wanted to please him. I wanted to please my brother. I wanted to please my mom. I wanted to please everyone, right? right. And my little brother, I, I remember my little brother wanted, he wanted um, Wendy's. So like I went, I was driving to go to Wendy's and then he's like, no, I want McDonald's. And I'm like, okay. So like, I, like I, perform like a moving violation right like so the red light I went into the Wendy's parking lot and went through the other side of the Wendy's parking lot to go to McDonald's which was on the other side and the police officer pulled me over you know and that was like you know that was like the last day that I got to like see like my bed right like my bed because I had moved on I, I had gotten a really nice place and I was like, um, I, I was doing well and I went to traffic court and I never made it back home. Right. Yeah. Like I, I never made it back home. And then I had to come back to Atlanta and I had to come back to Atlanta forcibly. Right. Like, because they extradited me down here and I had to answer to like, to these crimes that I did not commit, like he committed them like in my vehicle. And it was just, it was just a whirlwind for me because I just really could not believe that, you know, that was like my life. Like I could not believe it, like honestly. And I even told the judge like, this has got to be a mistake, right? Like you, you can't be serious, but he was very serious. And they very seriously extradited me down to Atlanta and, um, you know, yeah, so I, I, I didn't end up going to prison right away. Like I had like an amazing um, judge who actually was like, okay, this girl was in New Jersey and the crimes were being committed in Atlanta. So maybe she didn't do it, right? Like she couldn't possibly be in these two places at the same time. Right. And, um, you know, and then, I, I was like on an ankle monitor and um, I just remember, I just remember like what I felt when I went to, um, when I went to court, um, like I was going to like these routine court visits for like almost four years. Mm. And um, when I got there, he had, um, oh, what is it called? Let me think of it. Prostate cancer. And when he found out he had prostate cancer, it was so aggressive that he had to get off the bench and he died. And there was another lady um, 
who for some reason my brain blocked her name she was my new judge and she said um, that we had to solve the case um, all of the cases on her calendar by Wednesday or um, be prepared to go to trial and um, yeah so we this had been going on for four years and in four years it was like okay prepare to go to trial so um, I had um, an attorney who you know, we pretty much paid a lot of money to, but he had a famous, a famous rapper as his, um, his client too. And he was one of those people that was on the same caseload. So it was like, um, it, it, it had gotten to the point where he had to decide what to do and whose life was valuable and the oh, rapper's wow. life was valuable. So I got negotiated out so that this rapper um, could, could be free and the rapper was actually guilty he did he committed the crime um he committed um the 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 crime that he was charged with um he says it was self-defense and he was able to get him off the charge and um over a golf you know over a golf game he traded me for that person and I ended up having to serve these 10 years and yeah and um you know, prison was, prison was a very, um, it was a hard experience for me. I lost a lot during that time, but, um, I did gain a lot. So I can't, yeah, I can't, um, just say that it was all a wash. Well, tell me, I mean, that is, that is a, a a mindset that is profound on so many levels, but tell me just that moment of when you first heard 10 years, that you would be losing these 10 years of your life? Like what, just take me into that moment. Like, um, I don't know, because, so my attorney, he lied to me. He told me that I would be getting, you know, he told me 10 years that I would serve one year tops, right? Because they know I didn't commit the crime. Um, I was this upstanding citizen. Like I, you know, I graduated top of everything and also I was a business owner I'd owned a a company right like during these four years I was successful so um he told me that I wouldn't do more than you know I wouldn't do more than a year so I didn't think that it was 10 years you know because they'll give you a 10-year sentence and then you're expected to do a percentage of it right not the whole entire thing so your feeling in that moment was you might be saying 10 but I've been given information otherwise that suggests that this is just an arbitrary number. And it's likely that who I am and what I've accomplished will speak for itself in some way. Um, I I guess I'm hearing that that didn't come to fruition because I know obviously through your storytelling and your, your, your talk with the program that you did actually spend the full 10 years. in. I did. I spent the 10, the full 10, right. Um, Like, so during these four years, a lot had happened, right? Like during these four years, I had I had gotten married. Um, I had a, a, a stepchild like that I had been raising since three days, um, since the um, since the baby was about three or four days old. So like I had this this um, family, right? So the judge also told me that when I came that day in court, that I would be able to have like a month together my things to situate, you know, to situate my child and to situate my family, um, that I would have a month before I would have to turn myself in. But the person before me um, didn't come back 
So they decided not to give me, you know, the month that was promised, right? So um, my stepchild at the moment, like, went livid. He was, like, kicking the bailiff, kicking the judge, like, once they put the handcuffs on me. It was a very, um, it was a very horrible moment more so for him than me because I'm like okay I'm gonna come home soon so it won't be a big deal right um but that wasn't it it wasn't until like I was already incarcerated that they sent me papers and the paper said that I would have to do 10 years day for day and I literally tried to commit suicide like I tried to jump off they had like this scaffold and I like tied the sheet because there was no way I had no clue how I would be able to do 10 years like no doubt in prison I, I I couldn't even figure out how to do the first 90 days because I don't eat red meat I'm allergic to pork and it's not like anybody is going to like um you know what I mean like give me any special treatment I'm in prison right and yeah it was it was it was really horrid and it was a really really horrid experience for me um I I I don't know like I just I think numb is a good word like numb I was like numb until like I would say about my fourth year I was just very very numb right like I just I just thought it was like I just I don't know I thought someone was punking me (laughs) like you remember that show yeah I thought Ashton Kutcher was going to jump out of something and he was going to tell me that this was a sick joke but he never did then mm. it was very much my reality. They told me, you know, they wouldn't let me take any classes um, initially because I had already, you know, I was already degreed. Um, I was able, um, again, in one of those situations where people like milk my brain, like there were officers inside that I got, you know, I got their um, undergrad degrees for, I got their master's and I got a doctorate like for a couple um, of the officers that were inside. And again, they thought they were using me, but again, I was keeping, I was using them in my mind because I was trying to stay current as far as as information and as far as like um, education wise, I felt like if I just let my brains um, stay dormant, that I would you know, that I was somehow like perished, like inside there, because everyone doesn't make it out the same, right? Like your brain, just doing the same thing over and over and over again, not having any personal autonomy to think for yourself, having to do, you know, every, every move is restricted. That has a lot of impact on people and how they show up in the world afterwards right there are a lot of folks that don't make it I had a really close friend of mine her name is um Gigi and she passed away she had a brain aneurysm you know um and then there are people who turn to drugs there are people who never recover like um sentencing someone to prison it's um you know I I really do think that um folks need to really understand what they're doing and um, whether a person is guilty or innocent, really understand um, that when you send a person to prison, they will not return um, in the same way that you sent them. And some people are actually, um, you know, pretty decent people when they go in there, but they don't return the same way. So just, you know, folks need to just understand what crime and punishment is. And, um, 
yeah, so it's it's just more implications than just a person is it's it's good or bad and they just go to jail and yeah, if they somehow come out and then they're, you know, good now. That's not true. There's no reformation um, you know, like policies or practices inside of the carceral state, especially not in America. Like I've um, studied prisons throughout Europe and even in Canada, but the system in America is just, it's horrid. It's horrid. And um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's really a horrid place and it's a very violent place. And the violence doesn't always happen between, you know, um, people who are incarcerated, but it, it happens a lot between guards, right? Guards and, and people who are incarcerated. And, and it's also like that because um, they put prisons and in, in, in jails in communities that are poor, are, that are poverty ridden, right? So here's this, this, this theme of poverty because these people are poor. So this is like the highest paying job that they have. And it's not a high paying job, right? And you put them in these positions where they're not really making much money. And they're in here with people, you know, and, and it's kind of like they're put against one another, like a person incarcerated in a guard, they're taught to be like, you know, to kind of destroy one another. So it's, it's just a lot of like, politics that are like you know that happen with folks who are like in the carceral system both the guards and the people who are incarcerated so it's just you know I just always encourage people to not just look at things as black and white because it's so many shades of gray and um, especially when you know a person is is really young and you sentence them to like, they're giving out like 30 years. Like I have a friend who was just um, released after 30 years and she literally is having so much trouble functioning in the world. Like, and it's, you know, and she, and she was later exonerated because they found her to be innocent, but she wow. still has trouble functioning in the world. So tell me about, tell me about that too, because I think this is something else that we learned from you through uh, the program is that your punishment in quotation marks didn't end when you left prison, that there was social punishment thereafter, and maybe even still to this day, talk to me about, um, reintegrating or reentering life or society or your family situation, uh, when you come out of prison, as you mentioned, your friend, I mean, 30 years and not really knowing how to be in the world and also being up against, as you shared with us as well, being up against things like not even being able to vote inside the system that sort of got you there in the first place. But talk to me about the after the days after when you were released, what was that like for you? Well, I was petrified for one, like, I just remember going to Walmart and just being petrified because it was so much movement around me, right? And like all my movement was controlled. So I just remember freaking out, seeing all of the people just moving around. Like I really was overwhelmed. That's number one, right? And just coming home and trying to find like a job was very difficult because like, I can't like work for Lyft. I can't work for like Uber. 
so like some of the things where people are like, well, just do that in the meantime. There's no in the meantime. So, you know, jobs that are available for people who are impacted or the jobs that no one else wants to do, right? Like, uh, like you can work at McDonald's if they'll allow you to, you know, like if it's always an if, and if they allow you to, they're going to pay you at the lowest of the scale, right? So they're not going to pay you at the highest, you know, at, at the scale, you would probably, if everybody else is making $10, you'll make $8 because they'll think, okay, you should just be happy that you have a job, not understanding that you have to recover. You have to, you know, just repair a life. Like I was away for 10 years. Like that's a lot of repairing to do. Like when I came home, I had no clothes. I didn't even own a pair of underwear. I had nothing. Everything, every part of who I was before incarceration was completely gone. Like I had no, like no identity. Like I had not one picture of like my childhood, nothing. Everything that I was evaporated. I no longer had it. It, it, yeah, it just, it was just no more. So that was something that was very, very, uh, very, very difficult. And then I wasn't able to vote at all, right? So I was introduced to the work that I do, like um, with uh, Movement for Black Lives and with the other organizations that are like um, in the world that work um, specifically to um, get equity for people who have been impacted by the system, just for marginalized folks at, at large. Like um, I was able to be introduced to that work and that was how I was actually able to earn like a living wage, right? Like, so that I can actually prepare my life because let's face it, like if you, if you have no money, you, there's no, there's no way that you can prepare a life. Like if you don't have like any means to, to get a car, to get to work right. or to have an address to receive, you know, your check or to even report for probation or parole, like everything is linked to being able to earn a living wage. And you have to pay fines and fees to the court and to the probation. And if you don't have money, then you you literally have no, like, you have no life. Like, you have no life. And there are more people than not, um, you know, formerly incarcerated people are the largest growing population of unsheltered folks. Like, we are the, the largest population of people who are living underneath the bridge. Because people, you know, like apartments won't give us places to live. Jobs don't want to hire us. And yeah, so what does that equal, right? Like it equals A, going back to prison or jail just to have like a place to be. Because I know people who have done that. Or you, you, you know, you just hope and, you know, and pray that something will change. And you end up, you know, you end up some way being underneath the bridge right so those are some of the choices that that we have like everyone you know doesn't end up in my shoes you know like I was very fortunate but everyone doesn't end up in my shoes right like some folks actually end up like my friend Gigi and some folks you know commit suicide it's it's really ugly right so what happens after this decade is handed out to someone and they can't recover from it, what happens then? 
So those should be some of the things that are like um, actually taken into consideration when folks are handing out sentences to people that, um, you know, that can be reformed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and something you said to me right before we actually hit record as well, um, that I think, I mean, it feels so true of how generously you're sharing your story and your wisdom and what you've learned from being both in the system and observing the system thereafter is you said, and I quote, the most freeing thing is not having to hide. Can you talk to me about just that feeling of shame really around hiding behind uh, whether or not it's the, uh, the crimes themselves or the labels or stigma in society. Talk to me about that. The most freeing thing is not having to hide. Well, like, I think like for myself, like I had already formulated it in my brain that I would that no one would ever know that I was like formerly incarcerated. I would not tell anybody I would change my name if I had to change it, whatever it took. Like, I just was not going to be that person. Right. But the thing is like, once I found the work that I'm doing and I was able, I was just able to say, Hey, this is what happened. I, I went through this and you know, that is what it is. I was able to be free. Right. Because like I, I don't, I don't have a rock to hide behind because you can just Google my name and, you know, my work will speak for itself and it will say Bridget Simpson, formerly incarcerated, you know, business owner, entrepreneur, interstate, whatever, but it will attack formerly incarcerated because I lead with my story because I don't want anyone to ever, you know, feel like they have to look me up or whatever. I'm just forthright. And that it gives you, it gives you wings. It's very free. You don't have to like, you don't have to shrink, right? Like, so if somebody does not want to speak to me, if someone does not want to, to date me, if somebody does not want to date me because I'm formerly incarcerated, then that is it. You know, like I, I can weed out folks a lot easier than you know, actually hiding and, and pretending to be somebody that I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, I know by virtue of our, our conversation here, um, before we hit record, you do now have a wonderful boyfriend in your life who happens to be taking you out to a amazing birthday dinner tonight. Um, but that, I mean, that certainly kind of sews up this question that I had around, losing the family that you had when you went to prison, you said you were married and had a family um, and that relationship ended. How was the relationship with your immediate family as well? Siblings, parents, close circle. So, so now I feel like we're all getting to know each other again. Like initially when I came home, I didn't know them. Right. You know, like I, I didn't know them. Like my mom, like I got to see her maybe once a year sometime. You know, so like it's very difficult to, you know, to be in relationship with people when, you know, in order to be in in relationship, you have to be in relation, right? You have to know them. You have to hang out with them. You got to call them and all of those things. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to do those things. Mm -hmm. And And my family lived in New Jersey and Michigan and all over. So I didn't get to call them. They didn't come to see me. I saw one of my brothers maybe two or three times one 
my other two brothers I saw twice once during my entire 10 years I saw them one time you know and my cousin is probably the person that I saw the most but I really didn't know them so the people that I knew was was like you know my friends that I was incarcerated with you know those are the people that became my immediate family because when I cried when I was hurt it was always them that was there you know what I mean it was it was always them. They were the ones that would, you know, you know, make sure that I was okay. They would make sure that I was fine. So like, then you, you, you build, you know, you build a family unit, you know, you build chosen family. Like there, you know, there was a young lady in London. I knew for a very long time, you know, like I knew since she was maybe about 17, another one, you know, Maggie, I knew since she was about, 16 so some of these people like I grew with them you know what I mean like they were kids they were young young people and I I grew with them some of them were like my actual kids because they were you know I I wasn't much older than them but it it was just the way that it was yeah so and some of the ones that I've left behind I'm still in in communication with and some of the people that come home like I help them you know, with their finances, I help them to purchase homes. I help them like I don't just leave them because I just, I don't know, I can't, it, it's impossible for me to forget what I went through, what they're currently going through, and how difficult it was for me to like, um, to get on my feet. Like I had a negative 633 credit score. And most people think that I'm lying. They're like, Oh, you can't have a negative credit score but I took pictures of it so fortunately (laughs) I get to you know tell the truth but I did Um, I had a negative credit score so I just took everything that I did and I gave it to like my friends and yeah so like um, most of them right now they have homes and you know it's just it's just been really um, amazing to be able to to hope um, you know like after you've gone through such a dark period to be able to help folks, um, you know, just get some sunshine. It's really amazing. It's really fulfilling for me. I love that. I love that, Bridget. It means just, I mean, you you actually said the words, they're impossible to forget, or this experience is impossible to forget. I will also say you are without question, impossible to forget the impact that your story and your work and your wisdom and your teachings and your own version of art has had on, I know me personally, um, my circle, the audience that was at this event is quite profound. And I typically wrap up since we're coming to the end of our recording here, I typically wrap up with a segment called secrets are out, but I want to do it like this for you because, um, it is really rare that I come across a subject matter that I frankly absolutely have no lived experience with, um, or at least direct lived experience with that I really don't know anything about. And I, I lean on you for that, for not only the story, but for the wisdom. And I want your voice really to be the loudest here. So I would love to know kind of in this final segment, what advice would you have or what do you want people to know who don't have lived experience or are not quote impacted they are not the impacted population and then 
simultaneously, what do you want the impacted population to know? What would you share with those two populations about how change can be made beyond this, you leading with story and being in your first person narrative and helping us really understand that experience? What can we tangibly and tactically do to help reform this system? What do you want people not impacted to know and people who are impacted to know? Well, like, for one, I just, um, I guess this is very similar to what I talked about in my talk, that we're all trapped, like, we all have our own personal prisons, and, like, whether it's, you know, it's, it's diseases, whether it's, you know, whether it's lying, whether it's being abused, whatever it is, like, we all have our own prisons, which means that we're more alike than we are different, so I think that's the first part where, like, folks would be able to have like a common denominator that there's more you know folks are more similar than they are different folks if folks just really actually listen to to the people who have been impacted by um, by systems not just like the carceral state but just systems in general like um, you can't tell a person who builds homes um, if you are a doctor what <laughs> what what they should do next right it's two different things so I would just suggest that folks listen right and um, when there's an opportunity to to give like of your time it does not have to be you know um, it doesn't have to be monetary resources right because the most valuable resource is is your time so if you just actually give an ear to a person who has been impacted and just really just slow down to just really think that hey a person that has went away for a period of time that they have been socialized to live in a box. So I might need to be a little bit more patient with them, right? Like, look, if you're an employer, look what it looks like. Look at what it could look like for you to maybe offer somebody a job. There's tons of tax savings for you to actually give a person that's been impacted an opportunity at your place of work. There's bonds there's different things at least here in America but just to, to just figure out a way where you can actually be human to another human being and I think if I leave anything is the first thing is to just fix your frame of mind right a person is a person whether a person has been impacted whether a person is black orange gold queer straight whatever like a person is still a person so I think if you look at people as people then we can work out the rest yeah. So that's what I would leave. Yeah. I love that. And what would you say to the impacted population? Is there something that you would want to leave them with today? Just knowing and specifically maybe around what you led with at the top of the show today around, um, the concept of, I, th I think what you used was to be free is really to live without confinement, but that really is not just a uh, physical confinement, but also mental uh, confinement. What would you want to leave them with today? I would just um, let them know that, um, you know, that we aren't alone. Like, um, you know, we have like a responsibility to one another. We are our brothers and sisters keepers, like in this situation, because we are the ones that understand this specific lived experience and what it feels like to be a human caged in a box so we fully understand that so um just just remind um just to remind a person to just be gentle with themselves 
this has happened, you will not recover overnight. So don't try to live 10 years in one day that there is, you know, there is hope, there's hope. And to just check out folks like Bard Business, Movement for Black Lives, just there's different organizations out here that want to help and want to help to just um, to just show you what your rights are. Like all rights aren't lost, you know, to just look for that, um, that, that North Star because it's out there. Like I found it and I would love to be that North Star for you. Yeah, I think you are that North Star. I mean, you, we said in your bio, you are a wayfinder and there is no question in my mind you are like Oprah 2.0 here or 3.0, you just have, you will take it. You will. And you will put that crown on and you will go and have the most fabulous birthday dinner imaginable and celebrate life perpetually. Um, and you remind me, and, and I hope that this is a reminder to all my listeners as well, to celebrate life and celebrate all humanity and acknowledge and have some eyes open awareness on the impacts of not only our language, but our narratives and our stories and what we say and what we don't say. Um, we're all in this together. As you say, uh, Bridget, you are phenomenal. Um, I hope that we, oh, I'm just going to follow you forever. I think I said that at the show. I'm just going to follow you literally forever. But tell me as we wrap up here, what's next for Brie? What's next for you? What can we expect from your platform and your dreams? Well, actually, like um, I recently launched um, small step um, credit like it's a smallstepcredit.com so folks I can help folks um, get financially free right liberation is my game and it will always be my thing so um, yeah I would love for folks to check me out there broke budget will always be a thing so check me out there and yeah I think as you know as long as um, I'm breathing I will always try to help others like myself um and i'm not just talking about physically like in prison but other folks who may be in prison in some type of way be free so yeah so what's in store liberation that is my thing what's in store liberation i love that brie thank you so much for being not only a part of the true story speaker training program for but for being a guest today for just entering in some magical way into my life and into my world. Um, I feel really honored and grateful to have you and your wickedly smart brain um, presenting us with all of these ideas in this story. Um, like I said, I will follow you. I hope my listeners do as well. We will have all of your contact information, including the new platform, smallstepcredit.com listed in the show notes. Brie, go enjoy your beautiful birthday dinner and we Thank will you. of course stay connected. Of course. Have a good one. You too. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new 
speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth.